Bibles to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and if you would, it's on page 849, if you have a pew-style Bible, uh, we don't have the, pew, the Bibles in the pews because it's just additional touch surfaces we would have to disinfect, uh, but if, it's on 849 if you have the same type of Bible, uh, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he um, David's son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in Jesus' teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and give greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting the money into the offering box. Many rich people came and put large sums, and a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to himself and said to them, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The Word of God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things bright and beautiful, all things great and small, we come to you and we gather together with our brothers and sisters uh, to make much of who you are, holy, righteous, glorious, And what you have done, you have stepped into the darkness with marvelous light, and you have brought us out of a broken world in rebellion against you. Lives and families and nations in pieces, broken because of sin. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And you have sent your Son to lead us out of darkness into the marvelous light, where we will dwell in the presence of the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all those who have put their faith in the promises of God for eternity. We come to you because we, like the children's songs say, confess that we are weak, but you are strong. We so quickly turn away. We forget the promises of God. We forget the power, the wisdom, the might of God, and we turn to functional saviors that cannot save us. Father, we confess that we need you, our only hope in life and death. We thank you that you're a God who does not give us what we deserve. But you're also a God that does not deal with sin lightly and the brokenness of this world. 
but you're a God who says, I will send my son to live in perfect righteousness and to take the wrath upon him for all who trust in the person and work of Christ. Father, we thank you for the gospel, our only hope in life and death. Father, we come to you today and we lift up our congregation. Father, I specifically pray for our brothers and sisters who are not able to be here this morning. I see the places they normally sit. We miss their voices, their presence, their laughter, their encouragement. We are not whole without them. But Father, we live in a world that is broken. Pandemics and social unrest and political foolishness. All the idols of this world have come crashing down in 2020. And I pray that from the ashes we will lift our eyes into the hills from where our help comes from. Our help comes not from political parties and elections and social movements and denials and uh, health care and insurance and Wall Street. Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Remind us each day. Father, we thank you. Open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ in his word, ears to hear the promise of the gospel, and hearts that love. In his precious and holy name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We continue in the book of Mark. If you've uh, closed your Bibles, if you'd open them back up to Mark chapter 12, we'll do the final three sections uh, in verses uh, 35 through 44. At the heart of the book of Mark is the call to discipleship, the call to follow Jesus. And those that we, as we've read 12 chapters, we see that those who have responded to the call of Jesus was not who we expected it to be. It was the lame, It was the outcast. It was the marginalized. It was the oppressed. It was the ordinary who have heeded the call to follow Jesus. It was not the self-loving that thought themselves better than the crowds. It was not the self-righteous who had looking to themselves for their salvation. It was not the self-centered who were living for themselves. In other words, it was not the religious leaders. It was not the religious establishments. The religious leaders were not amused with Jesus. His claims to forgive sin they found ridiculous. He, um, his refusal to affirm the traditions of the elders that they had created was insulting. His lack of proper religious pedigree was annoying. He was, in their minds, just a backwoods, untrained hack that was leading the people astray. See, the problem with Jesus was not his teaching, per se, but that he was incredibly popular with the crowds. If Jesus continued, they would lose their control over the people, their power and their influence, and worst of all, it would hurt their bottom line. If people followed Jesus, they wouldn't be giving their money to the temple. And that would hurt them. So when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, 
They set a trap for him. And we've been looking at this over the last few weeks. They set this trap to expose Jesus for the fraud they knew him to be. The first thing they set was a political trap. In the year 2020, when we've watched debates and commercials, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It's like asking, what do you think of Trump or what do you think of Biden? That's immediately, that's just a, 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 a flame that starts a big fire. And the, and the, the, the Pharisees said, that's what we'll, I'll get him. But he answered it beautifully. Then the Sadducees came and they brought a theological conundrum. This resurrection that they, they uh, denied, this resurrection, they have a problem. And Jesus, again, answered it beautifully and the Sadducees stopped asking questions. And then finally, not just a political or a theological, but a religious question in good heart was brought to Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? And the crowds were like, surely Jesus will trip up on this one. But again, he answered it beautifully. So much so that his interrogators stop asking him questions. Notice at the end of verse 34. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. They heard Jesus' answers. They saw his actions. And they say, we have been outmatched. Checkmate. But now Jesus is turning the tables. Jesus is going to go on the offensive today, and honestly, for the religious establishment of the first century, and quite honestly, the religious establishment of the 21st century, it was rather offensive. Because he is about to pull back the uh, curtain, a la uh, Toto, pulling back the curtain at Oz. He's about to pull back the curtain of the religious leaders and reveal them to be dirty rotten scoundrels. On the outside, they appear pious and righteous and religious and have all the right answers and do all the right things, but their religion on the inside was putrid. Why? Because their religion served themselves. I want you to know this morning, Ocean Park, that those who are consumed with themselves give little to God. And those who love God wholly give him everything. Those con- there it goes. Um, those consumed with themselves, let me bring it back up. Those consumed with themselves give God little. Those who love God wholly give him everything. We start at looking at the first um, paragraph or several verses, um, an insufficient picture of God. The scribes, the religious leaders, and quite honestly, us today have an insufficient picture of who God is. Notice verse 35 and verse 36. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one by God is the son of David? Jesus starts his offensive by exposing the scribes' inadequate understanding of the Messiah. The teaching of the day that probably scholars say about a hundred years earlier really started to become very popular is that the Messiah would be the one that was promised to David to be the Davidic king. 
this a political or not it would be a political king who is a descendant of David this promise given in 2nd Samuel when your days are fulfilled God speaking to David and you lie down with your fathers I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne in the kingdom forever so the the scribes knowing this problem uh, this promise tied their political endeavors to the promises of God the uh, in the Davidic king that a descendant of David would take over and they said surely if the David was able to rid the Jews of his day of oppression the descendant of David the king the Messiah would be able to rid the people of their oppressors the Romans at the time their hated Romans Jesus knowing this teaching that had permeated the church uh, excuse me, the, the, the uh, uh, religion at the time, Jesus called them back to remember the psalm uh, the, of David, Psalm 110, verse 1, the psalm that we read for our call to worship. Notice Jesus quotes it here in verse 37. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies at your feet. See, the, the scribe said, well, David, the, this descendant of David will uh, be able to defeat his enemies and he will reign and bring this kingdom and will be free. But what Jesus is, does is he brings them to actually the first phrase and it says, the Lord says to my Lord or the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord Adonai or the Messiah. So David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is actually overhearing this conversation between God and his Messiah, his chosen one. And uh, Jesus says, how can David, how can the Messiah be David's Lord, but also David's descendant that would come down the road? How would that happen? And the scribes were flummoxed. They had no answer. And Jesus says, he has to be not only a descendant of David, but he has to be the Lord of David. He has to be both a, a human descendant of David and he has to be divine. He has to be, as we know in theological terms, the God-man. He has to be the one that is more than human. He's not just simply a political descendant of David who would rise up and have a political revolution, but it is God that is working and he um, sending not only a human, but who is divine, the son of David and the son of God. Jesus is not arguing semantics. He's implicitly declaring that he is the Messiah, the divine human fulfillment of Psalm 110, David's son and David's Lord. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. 
It's all over the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, Peter declares it. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, in his introduction says this, concerning his son who was a descendant from David, human descendant from David, according to flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, and he declares him, I almost lost it, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The kingdom of God is not simply a political accomplishment by the descendant of David, but it is a divine work of redemption inaugurating God's kingdom, accomplished only by the God-man. But the scribes didn't get it. The scribes, this is new to the scribes, they, they missed it. Why did they miss this uh, very clear understanding of God and, uh, and human coming together to inaugurate God's kingdom? Why did they get it? Because their picture of who God was was far too small. They traded an eternal God who uh, dwells with his people for a political kingdom where God works for them. Ocean Park, we fall into the same trap. We think political kingdoms are what we need. And political kingdoms and political parties are important. They lower our taxes, they fix the potholes in the road, and they grant us the basic freedom. Worship, assembly, press, uh, uh, protest, and religion. But those are not our greatest needs. They can provide us health care and education for our children and safety on our streets, but even those noble, necessary ends are not our greatest need. What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is to be delivered from the wages of sin and to have peace with God. Trump and Biden can't do that. Socialism and capitalism can't do that. Supreme Court justices and social justice can't do that. Only the God-man can do that. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus, as we will see as he um, walks closer to the cross that's coming on, on Good Friday, would lay down his life as a ransom for many, that his sacrificial death would pay the wages of sin, and his righteousness he would give to those who are united to him by faith, that may, they may have peace with a holy God. But the scribes failed to recognize it because their picture of God was too small. They had an insufficient view of God and his kingdom. They desired a kingdom where they possessed honor and wealth and influence. They wanted a kingdom where they were the brokers and caretakers of God's blessing. They wanted every carnal desire to be fulfilled by God. Does it sound like a kingdom we're living in right now? And the church has bitten the hook. The scribes held the word of God captive to their political and their cultural desires. And they crucified the king of glory, David's son and David's lord. Ocean Park, how often do we do the same? 
we tailor the word of God to conform to our political aspirations and our carnal desires, not allowing the word of God to transform our lives by the renewal of our minds according to the word of God. We embrace and we endorse people and ideologies and values that run in direct opposition to the teaching and the virtues of the kingdom of God because the end justifies the mean. Ocean Park, what if we're working for the wrong end and we're using the wrong means? Why do we do this? We would rather God serve our kingdom then we serve his. Because our gut picture of God is too small. Brothers and sisters, those consumed with themselves give God little. And those who love God wholly give God everything. Not only do we have an improper picture of God like the scribes did, we have selfish motives in our religion. Jesus criticized the scribes who did not, um, um, excuse me, Jesus' criticism of the scribes did not stop with their pitiful handling and misuse of Scripture. Notice in verse 38 and 39, or through 40, and Jesus' teaching said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour women, widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. I had to make sure my pastoral prayer wasn't too long today because of this text. They will receive the greater condemnation. If you were sitting there in that crowd, the temple, the backdrop of Jesus' words, this is shocking. And we read through it and be like, okay, what's next? What, what's the Lord speaking to me? This is shocking to first century. Think of the most trusted religious advisors in your life, and then Jesus coming saying, they're a bunch of phonies and they're snakes. And you would be like, wow. These that Jesus is criticizing are the PhDs, the professors of God's laws that are teaching God's laws. They're the moralists that are teaching what is right. They're the civil leaders that are teaching how to live according to God's word. These are the upper echelon of Jewish society, but Jesus calls them dirty, rotten scoundrels. Why? Because they had selfish, corrupted hearts who were consumed with nobody but themselves. He says four ways that their selfish motives were shown. First, their ostentatious dress. The scribes wore these long, flowing, gleaming white robes where they went. And uh, that stood in stark contrast to the common, everyday, first century Jew who wore colorful clothing. And when a scribe entered the room, the expectation is like a, 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 a judge that everybody would stand for their feet. And you would say, Father, or Master, or Honorable. That they would be greeted everywhere they went. And it was music to their pretentious ears. Not only their dress, but they were glory seekers. The scribe craved the best honor in the synagogues and the feasts. Their seats were, uh, d d uh, showed that they were um, held places of status. And it's not just the, the front row that we have empty, 
but they would have seats that were here against the back wall and they would sit here and look at the congregation and the congregation would look at them and they would nod their head in agreement when, and to be able to know. We knew the authority was the guy that was looking at us and every once in a while he would nod his head and they loved sitting in that with everybody looking at them. This is my seat of honor. And it wasn't only just in the synagogue, but it was also in feasts. You didn't have a party unless you had a scribe. You had, your party was the place to be if you had a scribe at your party. And, they, and, and that scribe would sit to the right or the left of the host. They hungered the praise and adulation of the people. But also, it wasn't just vanity on the outside. But to be able to fund their lifestyle, they exploited the vulnerable. They cared little for the people that they exploited. Jesus doesn't elaborate on how they did it, but he says they devoured widows. But it doesn't take much imagination and a little historical research, reading a, a, a Bible commentary or Bible uh, backgrounds, uh, an almanac or something like that, to be able to see the way they devoured widows was money. Unlike the Sadducees, who came from very wealthy families, the scribes are ordinary people, and they had to depend on the gifts of their worshipers and the benefactors for a living. And there is no doubt, like the televangelists of today that exploit the lonely widows watching in their homes, that they leveraged their uh, esteem to exploit the generosity of the most vulnerable members of society, Women who had no husbands and no children to care for them, pitifully poor. And it was the scribes who said, sow your seed, give us your money so we c God will bless you. Like the scoundrels we see on television. Their dress, their glory seeking, they leveraging God's word to defraud God's people, and then their pretentious worship. The scribes would stand in the temple, the house of God's prayer, the place that prayers were to be lifted up for the glory of God, and they would pray loud, verbose prayers, and they would have emotions, all so people eavesdropping around would look at them and say, wow, what a man of God. And even some commentators believe that widows would pay the scribes to pray for them. Pray for me because you're such a good prayer. It's despicable. Their worship was empty and they're meaningless and their motivations were selfish and vain. And Jesus says their judgment would be severe. Notice end of verse 40. They will receive greater condemnation. Literally, abundant condemnation would fall on those who exploited religion, who twisted the word of God for their own ends. Such words should have shocked the crowds. Excuse me. Such words shocked the crowds, but it shouldn't have. Remember, in the context of Mark chapter 12, Jesus has just finished, asked by a scribe himself, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says what? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then he's using a negative example, and he points to an unlikely source, the religious leaders, the scribes. The scribes, the experts of God's law that could quote the Bible chapter and verse, but they did not love the Lord with all their hearts. Why? They loved themselves with all their heart and all their soul and their mind. And they did not love their neighbor as themselves. They exploited their neighbor for themselves. The scribes were so consumed with themselves, they gave little of themselves or their kingdoms to the one true God. Even though they knew the word of God, they performed all the right rituals, they prayed all the right prayers, everything they did served themselves, not all the Almighty God. They were religious frauds. Their religion earned them nothing but judgments. Brothers and sisters, all throughout Scripture, the greatest condemnation the greatest ire, the greatest anger that Jesus has is not towards the sinners. Who is it towards? Those religious people who claim to love and serve the God though their hearts are wicked and, and, and vile. And he warns them with the greatest warning. Brothers and sisters, stop worrying about everybody out there and start worrying about the person sitting in the pew, not the one next to you, ourselves. Because our churches are in most danger of coming in the abundant judgment of God. J.C. Ryle, and I'm glad I, I found this quote because J.C. Ryle died 120 years ago. He was the Bishop of, of Liverpool. He was an Anglican, very faithful Anglican um, uh, bishop. And he says, of all the sins in which men can fall, none seem so exceedingly sinful as some as false profession and hypocrisy. At all our events, none have drawn from our Lord's mouth such strong language and such heavy denunciation. It's bad enough to be led captive by open sin, and you can name all, your, all the sins that are there, all kinds of things. And Scripture does. Scripture addresses it. It's bad enough to be led away by open sin and to serve diverse lusts and pleasures, but it's even worse to pretend to have a religion while in reality we serve the world. Let us beware of falling in this abominable sin. Whatever we do in religion, let us never, uh, never wear a cloak. Let us be real. Let us be honest. Let us be thorough and sincere in our Christianity. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. Let me repeat that. We cannot deceive an all-seeing God. Jesus is very clear. He has no place for religious hypocrisy, for self-serving worship, using God for personal gain, exploiting the vulnerable. Ocean Park, how often we are religious hypocrites like the scribes. We desire the applause of man, not the applause of heaven. We seek the honor from people and organizations and institutions over honoring God. We do whatever it takes to exploit whoever we can to gain power and maintain control. We say all the right things to all the right people to earn the respect of others while ignoring what God, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, has said. 
We do devote so much time seeking the power and praise and privilege and pleasures of this world, we have little left over for Almighty God's source of eternal joy. Are you a follower of Jesus? Of course I am. Do you read your Bible? I I don't have time. Do you go to worship? Sundays are my only days to sleep in. Can you serve your neighbor? Now is just not a convenient time for me. Brothers and sisters, are we followers of the God of Scripture or the God who serves us? Those consumed with themselves give God little. And those who love God wholly give him everything. Jesus turns, and finally, this crescendo, this this conclusion at the end of Mark chapter 12 tells us and the listeners of Jesus to give God everything. Verses 41 and 42. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. And he watched the people putting money into the offering box, and many rich people put in large sums. All coins, by the way. No paper money, no Venmo, no PayPal. Coins. And a poor widow came in and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. I want you to get a picture of this as Jesus is sitting in the temple. And like every Passover, crowds are pouring into the temple to present their offerings. Thirteen different offering boxes sat in the temple, and they had long trumpet-like brass openings that you would come up and you would put your offering in. I remember as a kid at Faith Baptist Church, uh, me and Charlie Ware and Tim Brubaker and Harold Toma used to have a contest that who could make the most noise giving the offering. Tim Brubaker is the pastor now in Wilmette, uh, uh, Skokie Valley Baptist Church we pray for. But you always do, and we had this going. We would get like the largest collection of coins, uh, either from ourselves or from our parents. And when the offering plate came by, you swear we were throwing a 100 mile per hour fastball into that plate. We'd be like, bam! And of course, my mother would get a big piece of flesh in my bag and be like, don't ever do that again. But I was like, man, that was loud. I got it. I was 12, but this kind of thing happens all the time in the first century because you have these brass-like openings with shekels being delivered into the offering plate. So give, give yourself that. As these crowds are coming in, you have the important people and the insignificant, the wealthy and the poor, the young, the old, scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, farmers and carpenters and merchants. This year, Jesus was watching. Like a people watcher sitting at the airport, just watching the people go by, wondering what their stories are like. Uh, Denise and I, sometimes I make up stories about people walking by for entertainment. But Jesus is watching. And he watched as many wealthy Jews would come up with large sums of money, coins, shekels that they would have, and they would deposit these offerings into these brass trumpets 
Some would drop it in and then the so much the attention of the crowd would be quickly move over to who gave such a loud, great offering. Charlie and Harold and, and Tim would be very proud of them uh, of making this large noise. And some would humbly turn away because they were giving their offering with good hearts. But others would, for a moment, pause and just enjoy the gazes of those lesser people who were impressed by their righteousness in their giving. Hands, or, um, Jesus kept watching. Finally, unseen by the crowd, a poor widow woman shuffled in to the temple. Her Dingy clothes, torn and tattered, betrayed her desperate plight without a husband and without children. And in her hand she held two small copper coins. Thin copper coins, uh, because they were so insignificant. One sixty-fourth of a day's wages. Almost insignificant. She held these copper coins, insignificant compared to the shekels that were being given, and she proceeded to the horn, to the trumpet, and she dropped them in, inaudible, because they were so insignificant, but they were significant to her. Why? It was all that she had. Her hands trembling as she walked away. Jesus saw it all. And he calls his disciples in 43 and 44, and he calls his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing in the offering box. For she has contributed out of, or for they have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live in. Often you hear it, and you might have been thinking, oh boy, he's going to preach about money. This is so much bigger. It's not a text about money. This is a text about loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. The woman had no one in the world to care for her, and she gave everything she had to God. The only one she had to care for her. Why, and what was she communicating? Why did she do this? Because she loved the Lord. Her offering was not to receive the, appro the approval of the crowd, to earn a place of honor, and to be recognized as holy because they were insignificant, inaudible coins falling into the jar. No one noticed her gift but Jesus. Mark takes her, and as Jesus pushes aside the scribe, he pushes her to the forefront. This is what a disciple of Jesus does. They give everything. They love the Lord with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind, all their money, their talents, their time, their passions, their desires. They give everything to the God who gave everything to save them because Jesus is watching. Ocean Park, you cannot 
deceive God. He sees past your neat, tidy veneer of religion, and he sees your heart exactly as it is, exactly as you don't want your neighbors to see. You can fool your parents. You can fool your spouse. You can fool your church, your neighbors, and your pastor. You cannot fool God. And that should sober us. But what do we do? What do we do when we realize that our political um, views have supplanted our understanding of God's kingdom? What do we do when our outside is far holier than our inside? What do we do when we don't give very much at all? Comes back to two things repent and believe. Some of you are hearing this for the first time. And you're hearing that we are devoted to ourselves and our own kingdom and our own thinking and our own world and that we do not have peace with God and that the wages of, uh, of sin is death. We must repent of living for ourselves and our own thinking that we are the captain of our soul and the master of our fates. Repent of that. Turn away from it. Denounce it. And believe that God should have his place, hallowed be his name, in this world and in our heart. And see Christ for who he is, the one who has taken our punishment and gives us his righteousness, and follow Jesus. Repenting and believing is not one time that we do. At the end of sermon, during the just as I am, at a coffee shop when come, someone calls you to make a decision. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is done every day. Luther said on the first article of the Reformation, repentance is something that is, is a continual. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a year, two years, five years, 20 years, 80 years, the Christian life is a call to repent and believe every day. Because we automatically default to, I'm the master of my soul. I am the captain of my fates. Every day, we live for ourselves. We don't love the Lord with all our hearts and soul and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. We love ourselves. And we exploit our neighbor. We repent of that. And then we believe that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and Jesus washed it white as snow. We cannot fulfill the commandments without the transforming power of the Spirit of Christ. And some of you need to repent of the wickedness that you have done. And some of you need to repent of the goodness that you have attempted to commit, or connect the goodness that you have attempted to perform. And say, I cannot I need Jesus. And then follow Jesus and love him by the power that is in you, the Holy Spirit, to love the Lord, though imperfectly with all your heart and soul, your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that daily transforming by the power of the Spirit through his word, becoming more like Jesus, giving more of yourself each day. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would continually repent and believe because those who are consumed with themselves give God little 
and those who love God wholly give him everything. Jesus is watching. May we be found faithful.